All right, who's in charge? Jake, let's go. Hit the, oh, fine. Don't even wait. He already did. <laughs> <laughs> Hello there. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Monday, the 17th of July. Good to have you back with us on the pod. Yes, we are going to do some news on this Monday of Mondays. Uh, we're going to get you smiling at the end, ideally. But uh, first, with the news, Kai, why don't you go first? All right. Well, mine's not so much news as it is a rant, and it's a little bit of a rant against the New York Times, but it's mostly a rant against the Republican Party in the United States of America. So the New York Times has a big story today uh, about the plans for a second Trump term. And the headline says Trump and allies allies forge plans to increase presidential power in 2025. Now. You may think to yourself, well, increasing presidential power. I mean, there's been a classic debate in this country about the imperial presidency versus the powers of the legislative branch. And the legislative branch is, of course, Article One of the Constitution. And that's the most important branch. And oh, my God, shut up. That's not what this piece is about. OK, this piece is about a twice impeached uh, president under uh, indictment now on 37 felony counts uh, under the Espionage Act and who is credibly accused of having led and fomented an insurrection against the United States of America on the 6th of January, 2021 trying to, in a second term, amass political power in the White House by subverting otherwise independent government agencies to his power. And that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. And it cannot be the way it works. Go ahead. I mean, it's not, it's not the way it's supposed to work, um, but I think right. that's where American exceptionalism can get us in a little bit of trouble when we just like assume that kind of stuff can't happen here. And as You're we saw right. on January right. 6th, um, this kind of stuff can happen here. I remember back in like 2017, 2018, sitting with some of the White House reporters and asking them, you know, would they be game to ask Trump you know, mm -hmm. if he loses mm -hmm. the election, is he going to accept the results? Because even then you could sort of see the way the winds were blowing. And a lot of people just didn't right. take it seriously at the time. Right, right. And um, I, I was really surprised how comfortable people were saying these sorts of things just don't happen here. And yeah. this kind of um, article, like laying out these plans it's it's very easy like you're right it should not be this way but it could be this way because there's a big chunk of america that wants trump to be president again and thinks this is a great idea so you're, you're that's absolutely my rant. right you're, you, no you're you are absolutely right and and thank you for for pointing out the 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 flaw in my logic and in the logic of of many many people in this country who go around saying, oh, we're America, this doesn't happen here, and oh, look, it kind of does. But just to flesh this out a little bit, and then I'll get to my rant about the New York Times, which falls in line mm. with exactly, exactly what you were saying. This article lays out uh, how the president plans to do this by taking the Federal Trade Commission, for example, and the Federal Communications Commission, and those really independent but very, very important government agencies that regulate how so much of what happens in this economy uh, happens and putting it under direct political control. And let's remember that the president is, again, the former president is, again, credibly accused of using the instruments of power to go after his political rivals. Here's another one, just to bring it home to you. What if Powell, what if, what if Powell, what if Trump goes after the Federal Reserve and decides to try to subvert that to his political will? That would just be catastrophic for everybody in this economy. So, so that would be terrible, and it cannot be allowed to happen here. 
I, I would suggest that, that part of the blame for this lies with the media in this country for many years as Trump rose to and took power and exercised power, not actually raising the BS flag and, and, and saying what was happening in plain and, and understandable English. And that's on us, the members of the media. And here it is again with the New York Times saying in this headline, Trump and allies plan, forge plans to increase presidential power in 2025. That's not what they're doing. That's not what they're doing. Right? It would be a plan to establish an autocracy and a, a very nearly unlimited form of power in the presidential office. And that's not right. And we have to call that stuff out. All of us do. And that's it. That's my rant. Um, my rant. I'm very interested in, you know, the byline on this, which is mm -hmm. Jonathan Swan, Charlie Savage, and Maggie Haberman. Maggie Haberman. And you know, both Jonathan Swan and Mag Maggie Haberman were quite uh, adept during the Trump administration of getting in close and getting Trump and allies to talk yep. to them and got a lot of pushback and complaints, especially Maggie Haberman, obviously, for um, sort of access yeah. journalism and, and all the downfalls of that, which we've ranted about before. Um, and I wonder, you know, will it be any different this time? <laughs> I don't know. But, How can it not be? It has to be different. I mean, Otherwise, we're screwed. Look, look, look at this piece. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Uh, okay. Wow. Well, All right. Anyway, that. you go ahead. So I've got two. Um, the first one is sort of a subset of two. Two stories about unions. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter has a story about the SAG-AFTRA strike, which, as we disclosed before, Marketplace is a part of a different division of SAG-AFTRA, not the part that's striking, or at least a bunch of Marketplace editorial staff. But the annual cost, this is a headline, the annual cost of the SAG-AFTRA DGA and WGA contracts may be $450 million to $600 million a year, according to Moody's estimates. And the size of these strikes and the this is the whole piece is basically about the fact mm -hmm. that they think this strike is going to last a long time because the stakes are so high and one of the other interesting thing that's been happening with this is actors have been very publicly going online talking about how much they actually make um especially mm -hmm. like actors who are not the lead stars in things talking about getting one cent royalty checks talking about making less than a hundred bucks an episode you know because of streaming and things like that talking about how very well-known actors and popular tv shows uh don't make that much money and the this it, this is just a really interesting take on why the stakes are so high on this for both the studios and for the actors because if you think about streaming, the whole business model is kind of built on you pay for the content once and then sell it an infinite number of times, right? And if they start right. having to pay TV-style royalties on streaming content, that business model will have to change completely, right? And yeah. they obviously don't want to do that. Um, the actors want livable wages. Um, this is going to take a while. I have it. Uh, yes, it will definitely take a while. And I think the strike is going to go longer than anybody thinks. I have a, a technical question, which I don't know the answer to, but maybe there's some listener out there who does, or maybe you do. Do mm. Can somebody help me understand why royalties uh, and residuals in streaming 
are so low as opposed to linear television? Do we know why? Or is it just because they don't have to pay? Yeah, it would be really interesting to to hear that because a lot of these actors are very publicly going online talking about how little they make. Yeah. That's one of my union stories. The other union story is uh, the pending, what looks to be quite likely, a strike of UPS workers. And this is another huge strike. We're talking about 340,000 people. UPS is already training uh, some non-union workers to try to potentially step up if this strike goes ahead. So the news today is that the head of the Teamsters said on Sunday that he has asked asked the White House not to intervene if unionized UPS workers end up going on strike. And this is wow, from the AP. Wow, I missed that. Yes. I missed that. Yeah. Wow. And this is important because if you remember late last year, we had a looming, well, we did have a yeah, rail workers strike, strike yeah. about to happen. And the White House and uh, the Democrats in Congress also stepped in to avert the strike because they did not want that hit to the economy of bringing all that to a standstill. And the fact that the Teamsters are coming out publicly saying they want um, the Biden administration to stay out of it, that's not just a request, that's a threat. Because mm -hmm. we're heading into an election year and the Teamsters and the union vote is very, very important for Biden. And that to me sounded very much like a, oh, don't yeah. get into this because there will be yeah. consequences. Um, and I thought that was very fascinating. It, it, it's. It's, it's a really interesting rock and a hard place, right? Because mm -hmm. there are the Teamsters and the unions on one side, but there is, uh, and not to overstate this, but UPS is a, a not small part of the lifeblood of the American economy, right? Moving yep. packages around, logistics, all of that stuff. And so the challenge is keeping the union happy, but also keeping commerce moving and all those people who want their packages and what does he do? It's a real conundrum. That's it's a it's a good story. It's a really good story. Well, and especially since it seems like, knock on wood, inflation seems to be just now getting somewhat under control, and that yeah, kind of yeah. shock to the supply chain is exactly yep. the sort of thing that could tick it right back up, right? Exactly. So. Yep. Totally. All right. Uh, I've gone on quite a while, but I do have one more and a little bit of a content yeah. warning here because I'm going to talk about um, murder and, and sexual violence here. Um, there has been a lot of news about the these murders in Long Island, uh, the Gilgo Beach um, cold case, where several women were found brutally murdered um, in this part of New York. And there's a lot of coverage of it, and it, it may not seem like something that's in our wheelhouse, but this is also a story about the risk of workers, right? Because a lot of these women were sex workers, or at least reported to be, and some of them definitely were. But this, there's a piece in USA Today getting into just how much risk of violence there is for sex workers and how women sex workers in particular are often a top target of serial killers because they know nobody's going to come looking for them and they mm. are vulnerable and they think that these are people who will not be missed and unfortunately the history of 
police investigations into a lot of these cases affirms that. Um, and, you know, sex work is this particular kind of sex work is definitely illegal in, in most places in the United States. But the level of violence that some of these workers experience is just really horrific and not just when they are murdered but when they are just sort of everyday exposed to violence and I think this piece in USA Today looking at that from the sort of perspective of what it is like to do this kind of work and the risk that comes with it is, is really important to keep in mind yeah, so highly sure. recommend totally agree totally agree. all right now we definitely need some smiles <laughs> All right, you go ahead. I have a story about concrete. Because <laughs> that's the most exciting thing in the world, right? It's all good. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So there's a story I saw in Science Alert uh, headline, We Finally Know Why Ancient Roman Concrete Stood the Test of Time. Now, if you've been fortunate enough to, to travel abroad into the parts of, of Europe and North Africa that have a lot of Roman ruins, one of the things that's very noticeable about it is that their concrete structures remain in astonishingly good condition, considering mm -hmm. how old they are. And given that this is like a blended mixture that we still use a version of today and, you know, how quickly does your driveway crack? The fact that Roman concrete <laughs> has stood up <laughs> the test of time is, is, is quite impressive. And so these researchers really looked into why the concrete is so um, resilient. And it turned out that, and I'm not even gonna get into the science of it, you should read the article. The way that they thought previously, Rome, ancient Romans used lime in the mixture was slightly different. Instead of using it one way, they used it at like a much higher heat and they mix, made the mixture while it was hot, which had the, the, the after on effect of when the concrete cracks, water reacts with these chunks of lime in it to basically fill in the gap and re-concrete, you know, the crack that's formed. And so it's like self-healing concrete. Now, sure, this is interesting and curious just for history and randomness, but also now that they know this, they are now, this team is now working on commercializing a version of ancient Roman concrete as a more environmentally friendly alternative to current concretes, concretes, which are a major producer of greenhouse gases the way that we make concrete right, right now. And right. I thought that was really cool. History fixing the future. History is cool. It's actually great that they're going to figure out how to do that now because, uh, yeah. I mean, my, my driveway's cracking. That's why I chuckled. That's why I chuckled. All right. Here's, here's mine. It, it's not your traditional make me smile, but it's just flat out good news. And it comes to us from David Leonhardt at the New York Times, who writes uh, the morning newsletter uh, at the Times. Points out some new data uh, from uh, the CDC that the total number of Americans dying each day from any cause is no longer historically abnormal. That's a quote. And of course, during the pandemic, we had huge spikes in excess deaths, right? I don't want that to sound down, sound unfeeling, but that's what they're called. And during the pandemic, during the worst of it, excess deaths were more than 30% higher than normal. So, or the number of people dying was 30% higher than normal. That was, those were excess deaths. It is now statistically almost zero. That is great news and we should all be super thankful. It's happening in other countries as well. Um, and we're all vaccinated and taking precautions when we need to. And that's just flat good news. 
That's the only way yeah, to put that it. That is only way really to put it. great news. Still be careful yeah. though. Like, yeah. but still great Absolutely. news. Yes. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. Okay. That is it for us today. We are going to be back tomorrow for our weekly deep dive. This week, we're going to be talking with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Wesley Lowry about his new book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Until then, if you've got a question for us, a comment, if you've got some reading tip, uh, a cocktail for Kimberly or a beer for me, take your pick, whatever you want to suggest. Uh, voicemail at 508-UBE-SMART. Email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. We'll read them and we'll, uh, we will absorb them. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry. Eleanor Alfus writes our newsletter, and our intern is Neelafar Shabandi. Marissa Cabrera is the senior producer of this podcast. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand here at Marketplace. You're going to die on that hill, huh? I am going to die on that hill.